This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. All right. Rana Fruhar, thank you so much for coming out to Cleveland and joining us for this event. And thank you all for uh, getting up bright and early and joining us uh, for this talk. Thanks for having me. So glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. So you were actually one of the first to make the case that we've kind of reached this end of rampant globalization. I believe your first pieces on this came out in the mid-2010s. What were some of those warning signs, I guess you could say, that you saw uh, then? And are those signs still here today? That's such a great question. Well, thank you again um, for having me. Yeah. So I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from Indiana. And uh, my dad worked in the manufacturing business, um, auto components outside Detroit, where I know you're from. Uh, And, you know, I felt like growing up, I'm 53, growing up in the 80s and the 90s, I could see in a real um, felt experience way that some of the policies around trade, around, you know, how globalization was going to play out were not working quite as well on the ground as as we would have thought. So in particular, um, in the run up to NAFTA, China into the WTO, you know, there was a thought that, hey, we can sort of outsource the supply chain and Uh, You know, we're all going to get a lot of cheap stuff and we can be software engineers and bankers and it's all going to be fine. And an economy doesn't quite work that way. Um, And so as I got into journalism and I worked for many years as a foreign correspondent in Europe and Asia and then came back to the U.S. just in time for the financial crisis, you know, I thought something's wrong here. There's a there's a real difference, particularly in a lot of the, the middle part of the country between what we're being told is going to happen with globalization. And that that idea was that money, goods, people will be able to move seamlessly wherever they want to be and always land where it's best for them to, to, to do so. It didn't work quite as well as advertised. And in particular, I think that there was a, uh, a sense that, that global capital, that money could move a lot faster than either goods or people, um, which, you know, really remained much more rooted to, to places and individual communities and cities than than policymakers thought they would be. Okay. Okay. And you kind of described in your most recent book, Homecoming, this that we're we're amid this shift from the flat world that yeah. policymakers, particularly in the 90s, thought we were living in to more of this shift towards localization. Yeah. Who are some of the winners and if applicable losers of this shift? It's really interesting. Um well uh, let me let me go back and actually, you know, talk a little bit about the flat world thesis, which, you know, when people say the world is flat, um, you probably think of Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist who wrote a book um, called The World is Flat in 2005. And it's sort of helpful to think about what was happening in that time period. So 2005 was the middle of the fastest global growth in history. And there was a there. This was in the lead up, of course, to the financial crisis. There was a sense that all boats were rising. Place doesn't matter anymore. Um, you know, whether you make something in China, whether you make it in Brussels, whether you make it in Cleveland, it doesn't really matter. We're all kind of one big happy world community. And 
indeed, global growth was very high. But what was happening inside a lot of countries, certainly this country, but but many other uh, developed countries, was that inequality was growing uh, really rampantly. So particularly in, in parts of the Midwest and parts of the South, you were beginning to see a real hollowing out, in part because of the outsourcing of, I believe, many parts of the supply chain. Um, so financial crisis hits, um, you know, you get a lot of money sort of dumped on problems, um, quantitative easing, low interest rates. But then we get the pandemic and then we get war in Ukraine. And suddenly people began to see, oh, gosh, it does matter if you get your energy from an autocrat. It does matter if you can manufacture PPE and vital uh, pharmaceuticals, um, you know, and, and have secure energy supplies. Those things really do matter. And so you begin to see not just in the U.S., but also in Europe and in parts of Asia, a kind of, gosh, we need to move from an efficiency paradigm to a resiliency paradigm. And when I say efficiency, you know, this idea that, OK, you can have a super long, complex, very highly siloed supply chain, um, which is efficient, but it's efficient only when everything is working properly. You know, if you get a pandemic, if you get a tsunami, if you get a war in the, the South China Seas. Not such a great idea. You know, maybe you want to have a little more resiliency. And so, you know, you go back to um, the Trump administration, tariffs put on China, you get uh, into the Biden administration, you start to see Build Back Better. All of this is sort of part and parcel of what I think of as a very bipartisan, um, across the board sort of shift to a sense that, gosh, you need to have local resiliency and you need to make sure both at a national level, but also at a community level, that people can get the goods and services and products that they need quickly when something bad is happening in the world, which I'll just say one more thing, and probably you all know better than me, supply chain interruptions are now happening every 18 months to three years. So this is not a black swan event. This is something that for a variety of reasons is becoming the new normal and I think is going to put your industry uh, you know, as we were saying earlier in the green room, um, really at the center of what's happening in business news for the next several years. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about, um, you know, this shift from, you know, growing up in Detroit, you always heard about, you know, the River Rouge plant, how it would yeah. take uh, raw materials and output a finished car. Yeah. It's really hard to picture that nowadays, but this sort of shift away from just-in-time inventory um I guess, do you think that this is permanent? Do you think that we're going to kind of see supply chains shrink permanently and get a little bit more local um, going forward? It's it's interesting because kind of hearing, talking to and hearing about different companies' uh, supply chain strategies, they, they get this idea that uh, being more resilient rather than more efficient is definitely safer and better. But then, you know, at the end of the day, they think, OK, well, I've got to keep profit margins high and I've got to keep inventory low. So it's 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 an interesting trade off because people know it's not a good idea. Yeah, they're still going to do it because that's yeah. just how financially they've got to do it. Well, you know, you're you're hitting so many core topics right there. Um, my first book, Makers and Takers, actually looked at the pressure from Wall Street on businesses to do just this, you know, move costs off the balance sheet, treat labor as a cost rather than rather than an asset. That financial pressure, which absolutely exists and everybody feels, you know, all day long, does create the kind of efficient supply chain that you mentioned where, 
you know, you look at something um, like, let's say, actually, the Rana Plaza factory disaster. I don't know if you all remember that about we just had the 10th anniversary. That was a a classic um, case of efficiency that looks good on the balance sheet at the moment, but there's hidden risk. So um, in Bangladesh, there was this factory called the Rana Plaza. Um, It it, uh, caught on fire and because of poor building standards, collapsed about 10 years ago, killed 1,100 people, injured thousands more. And when the, the, le- the scrim was pulled back on this, it turned out that this factory was an outsourcer to an outsourcer to an outsourcer of really big, major um, U.S. and European retail brands. Now, if you go back decades and, you know, you sit in the CFO's office and you, you think, how are they making that decision? Well, okay, yeah, it looks good to send production to the very cheapest places, you know, create a lot of complexity along the way. But at the end of the day, do you even know what risk you're holding? And it's funny because I I think in some ways, as somebody that covered the financial crisis, I think about supply chain risk and logistical risk kind of similar to financial risk in the run up to 2008. You know, back then, people were trading all kinds of things. They had no idea what they were buying and selling and what the risk was. That's kind of what supply chains have become. And now the scrim is being pulled back and companies and and customers and consumers are all kind of saying, wait a minute, where's where is stuff coming from? Um, Let's track this. And as you well know, um, you all do a lot of data collection. There's there's a big focus right now on tracking supply chains as a way to just understanding the business model. So mm -hmm, I do think that this is a a permanent shift. Now, I'll just add one more thing and say I think it's going to happen at different paces in different ways, depending on the sector, depending on the geography. Um, You know, I've been covering manufacturing and business for three over three decades now. I look back, you know, 15 years ago and folks in lower margin industries like textiles or furniture they were already reconsidering outsourcing to Asia because the Mm. cost energy productivity balance was starting to change. And so there was more regionalization there. Now, because of geopolitical issues between the U.S. and China, you've got a lot of regionalization at the higher end, chips, rare earth minerals, lithium batteries. I think in the whole electric vehicle supply chain, you're going to see a lot more regionalization. So it's it's a bottom up, but it's also a top down trend. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, the the shift, especially in the automotive space, especially with, you know, increased lithium manufacturing in North America, that's definitely yeah. seems like a big part of this. Um the kind of as a uh perhaps a, a, a different take on this, I noted uh or I'm sure you saw the the headlines earlier this year that China US trade actually reached a record uh number in, in goods trades rather in twenty twenty two. I mean, given all of these shifts and given all of these, um, you know, new kind of conversations were happening, it's certainly surprising, I guess. Yeah. Why, how is it <laughs> that this relationship is still growing? And do you think we'll continue to see um, sort of record yep. free goods uh, 
yeah. announcements? It, that's that's also a great question. So um, a few things to look back at over the few years. So if you remember, going back to the Trump administration, one of the quid pro quos, you know, um, Bob Lighthizer, the former USTR, put tariffs on China, I think rightfully so, um, and getting some of those deals cut about, you know, where they're going to be tariffs, where they're not, required the Chinese to actually sign on to buying more U.S. products, and in particular, more U.S. agricultural commodities. So there was a lot of horse trading going on um, behind the scenes. Now, fast forward uh, a few years, China is in the middle of a major, major debt crisis. So China is, you know, on the one hand, there's a lot of bluster. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, tough talk. We just saw um, some some tough talk when Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state, was over for a visit. But this is a country that is very vulnerable in a lot of ways. They have not moved on in their own economic model from being the sort of factory of the world. They're trying to do that. Um, they would like to do that. And they themselves would like to have more regionalized supply chains. Hmm. You go back to, to 2015, very important thing that people don't talk about. China put out a strategy called the Made in China 2025 program. And this said, we want to be independent of Western technology uh, within the next 20 years. Hmm. So when the Chinese Communist Party puts out a statement like that, they never vectorally shift. The details might shift, but that is the direction they are heading in. So they have said for a lot of reasons they want to move up the food chain. Uh, they want to own more of their own local logistics and local supply chains. Um, and anybody that does business there knows they have a lot of strategic sectors that are ring-fenced and protected. Um, but they're not there yet. So they're trying to walk this fine line to your question about this is odd. Trade is increasing, and yet we get a sense that we're going to localize. It's both. They want to keep trade high enough to get over the uh, economic hump that they need to get over and this major debt crisis that they're in. But ultimately, they do want to have more control of their own uh, supply chains locally. And that's it's always interesting to me when the U.S. gets blamed for trade wars because you know, this is a statement that was put out in 2015. This was actually before Trump administration. China's saying, look, we want to be more regional. Hmm. Given, you know, how much China has benefited from globalization, particularly, uh, you know, companies that had to open their own state-owned enterprises in order to operate in China, why is it that they're kind of leaning more into regionalization and seeming to kind of want to step away from globalization, especially... Yeah. Interacting with, uh, you know, the U.S. and the EU. That's a great question. Um, and this goes actually to kind of the core reason that I wrote my third book, Homecoming, which is about how I think the world is going to become more local and regional. I don't think China ever really bought into the Washington consensus, you know, and by that, I mean, uh, Anglo-American style globalization. You know, we I think we had in this country a very arrogant idea that Everybody was going to become more like us. And in particular, there was uh, a belief on both sides of the political spectrum that as China got richer, it was going to become freer. It was going to become, um, you know, come into the world trade system and follow the same rules as everybody else. China never stopped subsidizing uh, its own industries. And this was a real failed belief system, I think. It's, it's funny. I'll just share a personal story because it kind of sums up where we are. When I was thinking about, gosh, how do we get to this 
this point. Why didn't things go the way we thought they would have globalization? I went down a few years ago to Washington to um, do an interview with Richard Trumpka, who was at the time head of the AFL-CIO. He's now passed, a lovely man. And I asked him, I said, what was the conversation that you were having in the 90s uh, with NAFTA in the run-up to the WTO um, with with um, with folks about what is this going to mean for U.S. labor? What is this going to mean for U.S. industry? And he said, you know, it's funny. Somebody uh, from the Clinton administration at that point came to him and said, okay, look, we know some of these deals are going to be hard for parts of the country and for U.S. workers, but don't worry. Um, eventually, wages are going to equalize globally. You know, the world is flat. Uh, and in the meantime, you're going to get a lot of cheap flat screen TVs and, you know, prices are going to go down. And he's like, OK, but how long is that leveling up or leveling out going to take? And the policymaker said with a straight face, three to five generations. And I just the long meantime. It's a long time. Long meanwhile. Yeah, yeah. It's a long. Mean- well, you know, it says so many things. First of all, it says a lot about the arrogance of the economics profession that you think you can model like the results of a decision like that over a hundred years, um, you know. But I, in in some ways, it's kind of intellectually honest because that's the trajectory that we're on. Yeah. Um, the problem is that the politics of that are complicated, and the reality of, gosh, will we be able to make what we need and get it where we need to be if the world changes? That's complicated. Yeah, it's funny that story. I think I mentioned this before, but when I was in college, I took this um, uh, global economics course with this professor who said basically what um, the the policymaker that you mentioned said was, "Oh, well, you know, for now we'll see, uh, you know, maybe wages decrease in the U.S., but things will get cheaper, so you know, it's fine, no big deal." I remember uh, I'm from the Detroit area. I remember I was telling my dad about this, and he said. Well, maybe that professor would feel differently if his job was being outsourced overseas. Maybe maybe the conversation wouldn't be, oh, well, you know, things will get cheaper in the meantime. Yeah. And uh, you know, just to that point, it's interesting because all the things that make you middle class, education, housing, health care, those things were rising even before this latest bout of inflation. They were rising at three times hmm. the core inflation rate. You know, your third flat screen TV does not make up for the price of a house or what it's cost to send your kid to college. Right, right. Um, sort of on a similar note, um, you've written a bit before about how workers uh, would really benefit from strong unions, sort of the an increased push toward unionization. Even though we're seeing more and more interest and more uh, strikes and more sort of interest in sort of organizing, especially, you know, Amazon, Starbucks and other sort of retailers. Um, the actual union participation rate, as I'm, as you know, is at actually a record low. Yeah. Um, and we're, and, you know, looking at the resurgence of U.S. manufacturing, it's particularly concentrated in the southeast where Freight Waves is based. And I'm sure many of you are also based Um so I guess how do we square up this uh, the the lack of unionization, lack of uh, successful organizing in the southeast, with the fact that that's where manufacturing is coming back? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm curious your kind of thoughts around that. It's, it's a great question and it's a complicated question. Um, I would caveat my um, support for labor by saying I think we have a very problematic uh, labor relations paradigm in this country. Um, So I was a foreign correspondent for many years in Europe, and 
I think the Germans do a better job than we do um, with labor relations. In Germany, there's something called the co-determination model. And basically, it means it's not a kind of company-by-company organizing effort. It just means that labor... And many, in many cases, public officials get a seat at the board table and in the conversation along with business. And so and it happens at an industry level, um, if not at a country level. So it creates a more collaborative environment. And it's basically about having a conversation, which, you know, growing up on my dad ran factories, like growing up on factory floors, um, you used to have a little bit more of a collaborative relationship where, you know, labor would surface issues. Workers workers are, you know, they're on the front lines. They can surface problems. They can help innovate. That's one of the things that Germany and Japan do very well, that they have that more collaborative model. I do think that the point you're making is an important one because as much as we know, gosh, we need some support for labor so that we can get the right training methods in place, that we can ensure that we have middle-class jobs, that we don't have a race to the bottom, the current model definitely isn't working well. And I think it's is evidenced by the fact that a lot of growth tends to be in right-to-work states. It tends to be um, outside of the major uh, industrial hubs. It'll be interesting to see how fiscal stimulus, which is, of course, now rolling out um, and supporting more traditional labor models, um, plays out and and what kind of uh, evolution we get from all this. Um, so on a similar note, uh, I you know especially as a as a journalist I kind of heard the refrain you know the the learn to code refrain sort of the push towards or you you mentioned this earlier this kind of this push towards oh everyone can just become a lawyer an engineer a doctor yeah problem solved we'll take all those manufacturing jobs and put them somewhere else um and and with the growth in you know what we really can see AI and ChatGPT and all these things they really do there's definitely a lot of fear around what happens to these uh, previous, these white collar jobs that were previously seen as, oh yeah, be an engineer. You can, yeah. that's a that's a recession proof, that's a uh, fail proof choice. Where are you seeing um, in this new economy that we're building, where are you seeing uh, these most promising jobs mm-hmm. or the best uh, potential to mm-hmm. uh, reskill and, and re-educate? It's a great question. Um, so just to kind of amplify what you just said, I do think uh, over the last 20 years or so that there was this false narrative that, oh, anything in manufacturing, anything in, um, you know, old line industries, that's going away. Don't go into those industries. you got to, you know, go work at Google or you know, work at a bank. OK, yeah, Google and a bank. Great. But if you look at the percentage of the workforce of a country that those sorts of industries um, employ, it's just not that high. And you can see that in every in every generation, you know, as manufacturing has uh, become, um, you know, more technical and as the service industry has taken up, you start to lose jobs. That's tough for the politics of a country because not everybody can or wants to be a banker or a software engineer that just doesn't create enough jobs. But we have an opportunity right now, and I'm actually very excited about this because I think we're at a moment very similar to 2007. So 2007 was the year that the iPhone came out, if you remember. And that's when consumer technology really exploded. And so pretty soon everybody's got a device. There's this whole new world of apps and jobs that you know you couldn't have imagined before. That technology is now coming, as you all well know, into the industrial sector, into logistics, into manufacturing, into healthcare. Basically, 
into the 70% of the economy that hadn't really been deeply touched by transformative technologies. So you've got big data, you've got sensor technology, um, you've got the Internet of Things, you've got additive manufacturing, which, to your point, you mentioned earlier about the Henry Ford River Rouge model, which is the idea that you have a very vertically integrated industry where you put steel in, in one end and then a finished car comes out the other end of the factory. We're kind of going back to that model now in, the, in an interesting way. So you've got additive manufacturing companies, 3D printing. Um, and I've visited tons of these firms where you can produce in a week all the different parts of a jet engine in one place because you are spray painting them. You're not carving things out of metal, which by the way, it's tremendously more efficient, less energy consumption, cheaper. So that's a deflationary factor, which is interesting. So you've got all that starting to roll out through the supply chain now. And I just think it is going to be transformative. I think it's going to, I truly do believe it's going to be a new industrial revolution. And we are just at the beginning of it. And it's going to take decades to play out, which if you look back, just to kind of present a little bit of optimism economically. If you look at uh, at the last industrial revolution um, around the turn of the century, that took 70 years to play out in terms of, you know, um, turbine engines, you know, or sorry, um, uh, uh, you know, yeah, various kinds of uh, engine technology, lighting, um, you know, getting things rolled out through different parts of the industry, 70 years of productivity gains. So we could be in that kind of place again. And we've just we've got just a, a few minutes left. You know, one one quick thing that you mentioned that reminded me. Um, I I lived in South Korea before I moved. Uh, you know, in New York where where I now live, and you also now live. And it's interesting because that country, in that country, about seventy or eighty percent of all people aged you know twenty four to thirty five all have college degrees. So everyone's competing for the same you know, sort of office worker jobs. And as a result, you've got a lot of people unemployed who have college degrees. And it kind of proves your point that not every, you can't have an economy where everyone is a doctor, lawyer, engineer. You do need people in the manufacturing and industrials and agriculture. Um, one other one other point. Uh, so on the stage yesterday, there was a uh, transportation manager from L'Oreal um, who was kind of talking about how he prioritizes or in, or how the company prioritizes and navigates uh, which trucking companies to work with. Mm. And he said that uh, they prioritize first its service, then its cost, and then its carbon output. Oh, and that was, and he, he mentioned, you know, being an EU, a French yeah. company, they've got to really prioritize the carbon side of things and um, how that all works. And in your in your most recent book, you kind of described this tripolar world world where obviously we all know about the U.S.-China kind of bifurcation, but there's also that EU element thrown in. Yeah. So can you describe a little bit how this tripolar world is going to work? Yeah. And I think I, it, it kind of seems to me that environmentalism and pushes towards climate change is kind of a key differentiator between particularly the EU and, and the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, Yes, it, I would say that that was true in terms of it being a differentiator between the EU and the U.S. I would say that was more true a few years ago. I think that the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really a climate bill, you know, it's about trying to put some real carrots and sticks onto 
which companies are doing right by people and planet, you know, um, and and really kind of give them incentives if they're doing well and, you know, maybe make it harder for them to do business if they're not doing well by those two things. That is going to be a big driver of, I think, um, more focus on emissions as a metric. You know, we don't have a price on carbon yet. In some ways, I wish we did have a price on carbon because it would it would it would solve a lot of problems. Like it would immediately knock out Chinese mercantilism because you would not be able to do mm-hmm. business using dirty coal fired plants globally. So that would like ease a lot of trade tensions. Um one of the challenges is that the EU and the U.S. are kind of going at this differently. Um, there are different rules. I think that we're going to see policy-wise, I'm in some of these discussions, more harmonization. I think we're going to see the two blocks coming a little bit more in line. But let's face it, this is early days. You know, um, I'm very friendly with the folks in the White House that are trying to roll this stuff out. And it's like they're drinking from a fire hose because you know, things are happening on the ground. They're getting information about what's working, what's not working. So it's going to be years uh, of a work in progress. But I do think in the economics profession in general, uh, there is now an acceptance that growth qua growth is not good enough. You have to have growth that is sustainable from an environmental point of view, and you have to have growth that actually is good for labor because you know what? You can't run an economy that is 70% consumer spending if nobody's getting a raise. So you need to create some good jobs. You need to put money in people's pockets. And that whole ecosystem, that local ecosystem has to work. So I think this is going to be a good thing for American companies um, because, frankly, we're way ahead of the game uh, from Asia. And increasingly, I think the U.S. policymakers and U.S. companies are going to be driving um, how we deal with people and planet. And so I think it's a good time to be doing business here, actually. Yes, yeah, really fascinating the the kind of national conversation in just the past five to ten years have kind of shifted from more jobs, more jobs, more jobs to wait, are these good jobs? Are yeah. these are these jobs that people can take and actually buy things and afford a home and yeah. a car and you know, you know, healthcare and whatnot? So it is it is an interesting shift and it is definitely a positive shift. And yeah. It's a good time to, you know be writing about business for sure. A hundred percent. And it's a good time to be in your industry because I think getting things to where they need to be in a resilient way, uh, in a safe way, in a productive way is is honestly going to be the story of the next generation in some ways. Rana, thank you so much for joining us and thank you all for uh, watching our listening to our conversation today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you.